This is Robert Merdlachi, the Mindshare Learning Report, and welcome to This Week in Canadian EdTech, special edition of Mindshare TV. Uh, I'm honored to have join me for a Mindshare Learning Moment, one of the presenters at the Canadian EdTech Leadership Summit coming up October 19th and 20th at McGill University, Dr. Adam Dubé, who is the Director of EdTech Office at the Faculty of Education at McGill University. Uh, his research is in educational games and tech and math cognition. Thank you for joining me this afternoon, Dr. Dubé. Thanks for having me, Robert. It's a pleasure to be here and to speak with you about EdTech and the case of ed, uh, the state of EdTech right in Canada and the world more broadly. Well, uh, fascinating times uh, post-pandemic. Uh, much has been learned uh, from the crisis learning that uh, EdTechs had, um, you know, helped sustain uh, during this uh, period mm -hmm. we went through. And now it's really about really... Uh, redefining and refining learning and, and, and what's working, hence the inspiration around uh, driving innovation through evidence-based research being the theme of the summit. Talk to me about what you've seen in terms of uh, the impact that EdTech made uh, during uh, the pandemic and, and, and what some of the challenges are now that we're facing. Yeah, so I think one of the big takeaways for the the impact of ed tech during the pandemic is it allowed education to continue. The fact that we were innate, we were able to do remote learning allowed us to close the physical school place, schoolhouse, and then have classrooms, especially across Canada, you know, a workout at people's homes. It was incredibly hard for everyone involved, teachers and parents and children, um, but it allowed education to actually happen. So that's the, I think it's one of the biggest takeaways. And now that we're looking back at this practice, I think, you know, reflecting on it, we're seeing some different lessons of what worked, what didn't work. And one of the things that I see for the elementary secondary education space and kind of people's reactions to it is that there's been a bunch of research showing that out of North, out of the United States that there were a lot of learning losses that happened during this spell. Uh, some of the research is showing that children are two years behind where they should be in wow. mathematics and basic literacy. So these are this is very concerning. Uh, researchers were saying like this was going to happen. We've seen this happen with other natural disasters where schools were closed um, and it did happen here. And then one of the things that's occurring because of this is people are going, well, why did it happen? And people first off are pointing to online education, remote delivery. They're saying that for these kids, like, you know, it's a, it's a bad tool, it's ineffective. And so maybe there might be this snapback, this pushback against ed tech at the elementary and secondary level because of this learning loss. But I, I, Personally, I think uh, that's going too far. I think there's been decades of research on online learning. It can be very mm. effective if done correctly, if people are trained in how to deliver it, if we have the tools right. and everything else. But during the pandemic, we were doing emergency delivery. And there's a lot of other factors that are contributing uh, to why learning loss happened. It was still a pandemic, stress, anxiety, everything else coupled with it. It's not just the delivery method of the content that was part of the problem. So it's really complex, but I think we're seeing right now perhaps a little bit of a pushback on technology at the elementary and secondary from the public. Um, and a lot of parents who were sick of, who really didn't like doing Zoom school, right? So there's just this natural right. pushback against it. And I think we're gonna have to work against that reaction. And then I see, uh, you know, at the university level, at the post-secondary level, I see something a little bit different. You know, here, again, tech allowed universities to keep going and functioning. Um, and a lot of students actually valued uh, being able to learn remotely, and they liked that 
uh, part of it. Flexibility. Um, many of the myths, the flexibility of it, the fact that students could still work jobs, take classes in the evening, work it around their schedule. Uh, students with disabilities or with families were able to engage in classes uh, more around their schedule. So they really like that. And so for me right now, what's happening at universities, what I see the discourse, say, uh, you know, my own institution and other ones, it's like, well, what's the path forward? It's like, okay, well, one thing is like universities are kind of having discussions. Well, how do we make the case that students should be coming in person to universities? What right. does being here give someone? And we have to do a lot of work to make sure that we're making the best use of our in-person time through hands-on learning right. and social pieces. The social, and the other the social thing that learning, yeah, the so, building community as well. Building community of practice, mm -hmm. isn't it, right? I mean, that could be done virtually. I did a master's in that that guy. Pepperdine that we had a great community of practice. It was a hybrid program in 2006. So I've experienced that. I know the power and potential, mm -hmm. but it's complex and, and not all professors are embracing it perhaps. No. And it, and it takes planning and it takes, you took a program that was designed around this, right? So now universities have to look at, okay, how do we move forward? How do we actually integrate some online delivery parts into our programs where is that appropriate but still enable community building um, uh, the social parts of learning to occur the hands-on parts where it's needed and so going forward what we're seeing at universities is basically going let's take advantage of the fact that we do have in-person locations to use those better but then also let's see like what does work with remote instruction or online delivery and let's how do we do that well and the best way that we possibly can and so there maybe there's a little bit less of a pushback against it but there is but it's not like we're suddenly all going online instead it's like well let's go forward by saying like let's do the best of what's in person and what's online and that's kind of the discourse that's happening well uh, yeah and, and I think that's uh, a great opportunity for us to really drill down at the summit with uh, international experts that we have joining you from Dr. Tracy Burns uh, of the OECD, the chief analyst who mm -hmm. happens to be an undergrad from uh, from uh, McGill University. So I think she did her PhD at Northeastern. But, but you were talking about learning loss. Well, there's another alumni, Phil Cutler, who achieved unicorn status from paper learning to... Uh, mm -hmm. won the startup challenge uh, several years ago that we are Dragon's Den Education Edition. And in five years, he's really filled a void, particularly in the U.S. marketplace and in providing uh, tutoring to the masses, which is uh, which has got a lot of traction. But I want to I want to read one of your quotes around apps and the research <laughs> you're doing and the work that you're doing with Ubisoft. And uh, it's fascinating. But the biggest ed tech space uh uh, is apps and app store, which I didn't realize the magnitude of these apps uh, uh, in the hundreds of thousands have no standards for what we can call itself educational. Most apps are garbage. App stores could not do a lot more to do a lot more to help consumers. And you wrote a paper on this. Talk to me about uh, the inspiration. And I'm going to share uh, your uh, Ubisoft uh coverage that you got and your partnership with your PhD students doing research around this. Yeah. Oh, so hundred percent. So like the, the lesson, the message of the tweet was we, we have a whole series of work that looks at the educational app marketplace 
there are, um, you know, you and I were just talking about like one teacher who had access to 12,000 apps, perhaps that they had to choose from. And my lab looks at educational apps in say the Apple app store and the Google play store. Um, the, I just double checked, like the most recent citation we have is like, there's over 200,000 educate apps that call themselves education. Wow. And so that's overwhelming you know, for parents and students and teachers for that matter. It's, it, it's completely overwhelming and there's absolutely no guidance from the app stores themselves as to which ones are better or worse or even really accurately describing what's in these apps. Um, the app store descriptions, there's no regulations about what people really have to say. There's no guidelines for these types of things. And I talk with individual developers like, well, what should we put here? You know, what would be useful? And then we do research with parents and educators. What do they look for? when they're selecting apps, what markers or what we call benchmarks of quality do they look for when they're choosing an app from the app store? So we've done a bunch of research in that space. And one of my biggest things here is that I think that the ed tech industry and these platforms need to come together to create standards of quality. They need to somewhat create a regulatory system or a, or a review system that they can all say like, well, this is what's in our app. They can agree with sort of like an MPA rating for motion pictures out of the United States. We need something like that for educational software that gives some guidance to say like, well, what does this software do? How useful is it? Uh, how do we know that Brilliant. it's useful? And that would be useful for every good company that's really investing in this space because they want their products and their efforts to stand out against someone else who's just you know, not really thinking about the educational part of it. And it's just trying to enter the market. And, and, One of those 200,000. And Adam, that to your point, that was part of the inspiration we'll be announcing at the summit October 19th and 20th at McGill in partnership with your number one university in Canada. How does that make you feel to be part of that? No, no pressure there. Uh, yeah, I know it's, uh, uh, it, it, uh, the number one university always is uh, is an interesting metric. It depends on whose metric you're reading on which week. Yes. Because I'm I'm an alumni of the University of Toronto, and I get the emails there from them go. whenever they get the number one spot, and then I get the email <laughs> the next week from McGill saying, "But we're number yeah. one over here." So it's always well, uh, it's a fun thing to get. I get all the emails from all the institutions. Well, the, 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 well, the fact of the matter is, you're a top tier university, and yes, and well, exactly. We're all well positioned. With, with great tradition and uh, and you're doing great work and and partnered with Ubisoft and I, I pulled up that website and the and the coverage you got there. Talk to me a little bit about the uh, the inspiration for this project and and you know you were talking about compliance and interoperability. That was part of the inspiration of the Canadian EdTech Alliance that we're announcing at the summit. We're giving a sneak peek on a couple things that we're going to share, but. You know, there needs to be greater collaboration and understanding of, mm -hmm. you know, the standards and, and, and to your point that you made earlier. So over to you and uh, the Ubisoft project. Yeah, so this project was something that was initiated uh, by Ubisoft. Uh, they make a series of educational games called Discovery Tour based on their multi-million selling Assassin's Creed series. Each one of these games, there are three distinct games, uh, Ancient Egypt, Ancient Greece and uh, the Viking Age. And they make these ones that are purely for entertainment, but then they also make an educational version where it's got these in-depth experiences, these realized worlds for each of these uh, different time periods. And these are these excellent tools. And so they've already made these things, but they did notice that um, you know, teachers wanted help figuring out, well, how do I use this educational game in my classroom? 
you know, there's this barrier. Maybe a teacher isn't a gamer themselves, but they they heard about Discovery Tours. They saw it on the news or their friend talks about it. So, okay, well, how do I use games for learning? How do I use this game? Also, how do I teach what I want to teach? This is what I need to do in my curriculum. I'm supposed to cover these topics. So how do I do that? And so what we did as a group of researchers is we partnered with Ubisoft. Uh, we looked at curriculums from across North America, Europe, India, and China. And we said, what are the different learning goals for every grade from kindergarten to grade 12? And we said, okay, for each of these games, we created an interactive teacher guide that says, okay, wow. teacher, what do you teach? You teach mathematics? Well, you can look, you're a math teacher. Here's every single way you could use this game to teach about math. You can actually click on one of the guides for it's the C curriculum guide. And it's this fully interactive thing. And the idea of this is that we want to make it so that great tools um, are getting into the hands of educators. And so, you know, within these things, what we have is like a curriculum map problem. And uh, it's okay, uh, you know, going through all of them. But yeah. basically, it's a tool so that teachers can take advantage of, uh, right. the, of the educational game and know how to use it. And some of it is like, well, you want to teach math. You want to teach about triangles. Like that's like, here's where the game can help you do that. Or you can say, well, here's a list of all the things the game teaches. And the teacher can actually go through and pick and choose a bunch of things. And they can print off their own private uh, lesson plan at the end of this. And there's, it's interactive. There's videos. So it's basically a how to use games for learning around the Discovery Tour games. I could really see how engaging that would be potentially for students if the teacher leverages it properly and it's about relatability and 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 uh and that's what kids gravitate to yeah and the idea here is that you know again you've got a, a great tech solution in an educational game but then it's like okay how do you get the how do you get it to the students in the way that they're going to accept it and it's going to actually teach what the teachers want and that's a big puzzle with any sort of ed tech solution it's like okay great we've made this amazing tool but how do you how do how do we help teachers use it correctly use it well how do we give teachers the leeway so that they can make their own choices because all teachers are great at what they do and they want to be flexible so i think these types of things where you make teacher guides for software for educational tools is a real big space that needs to be filled uh, because you can make the tool but it's only going to be useful if the teachers know how to use it so this is one collaboration that we've done we'll talk more about it you know at the summit and have a kind of a review on i did this with uh two phd students uh Chu Zhu and Robin Sharma at, within, at the Technology Learning and Cognition Lab. This is my lab's website at McGill. Yeah, all the different projects that we do. So those two students were the leads on the project with, uh, uh, with uh, the team at Ubisoft. How important is it for an ed tech company to have a chief pedagogical officer, if you will? I personally think it's critical. I've worked with many different ed tech companies. Um, you know, you and I were just chatting and it's the experience that it's not necessarily the case that they have a chief pedagogical officer. A lot of times they have learning specialists, you know, that are lower, um, you know, perhaps in the production pipeline, uh, you know, of their software. But I think a company really needs a theory, a philosophy of how they think learning actually occurs, because that philosophy is going to guide the design of their products. If they envision learning, say, for example, as a company, as dialogue between individuals and conversations, well, then as a company, they're going to make a very different group of products than if they view learning as a matter of repeated practice. 
both of those things have merit. Practicing does build understanding, but so do conversations. So a chief medical college officer, I think, is someone who could actually set a direction for how they believe learning occurs. And this is one of the, you know, one of the papers, uh, one of the, you know, uh, on our, our on how to find good educational apps. But I, I really yeah. think that's key. And I've actually got a student right now, a PhD student, Armagan Montezami, and what she's doing is she's interviewing uh, educational app developers uh, in the process of making educational apps and basically asking them, like, how do you think learning occurs? What is your personal learning theory? And then she's looking at how does that translate into the experiences that they design. And one of the things that we've seen with educational apps is that people espouse a bunch of really big ideas sometimes when you talk to them, but then you look at their software and it's mostly drill and practice behaviorist, you know, approaches right. for a lot of software that exists, especially in the educational game space. And so like, you know, that, that pedagogical officer could be somebody who's checking to make sure like, well, this is our philosophy of learning. And then here's our actual, our tool. And are these actually, actually working? Do we, are we actually meeting what we're saying we're, we're doing? You know, I think that's, I think that's key. So we're having conversations with developers as part of our research group as well. Well, Dr. Dubé, we don't want to give away your entire presentation. So uh, you've been more than uh, generous with your insights and passion about the impact and potential impact uh, learning technology can have uh, on student success. Uh, any final thoughts to share? Oh, I think, uh, thanks very much for, you know, having this. I look forward to the conversations that are going to happen at the summit. And I think that, you know, ed tech can be an excellent tool uh, to solve educational problems, just like it's, just like we've been saying since the, you know, the 1920s right, with this idea. Uh, but the, but the question really is like, well, how do we do it? Well, how do we do it so that all learners benefit and not just some? So that's the, to me, that's really key. Well said. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well said. Thank you so much again for your time, Adam. Yeah, my pleasure. That was Dr. Adam Dubé, Associate Professor, Learning Services, Director of the EdTech Office at the Faculty of Education at McGill University. My name is Robert Merlacci, the Mindshare Learning Report. Be sure to check out www.mindsharelearning.com to get your latest issue. And until next time, or before I say my signature close, be sure to join us uh, October 19th and 20th at the 13th Canadian EdTech Leadership Summit uh, in Montreal in partnership with McGill University. And until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and keep the learning curve steep.